0: The 5.30 hour on Sunday has arrived, of course, and we're always thrilled and excited about the opportunity that's ours to assemble in the name of God, in the name of His Son, and to offer our heartfelt worship and praise unto Him. It is stated in the Word of God that it is from Him that we live and move and have our very being, Acts 17, verses 27 and 28, and certainly as we gather on an occasion like this one, we're mindful of the blessings of this day physically. And also we're mindful of how great the spiritual blessings have been. It is the case that we're going to study about Jesus and Zacchaeus. And I have written the two words in a particularly inviting way. The word Jesus is in all capitals. The word Zacchaeus is not. I did that for a reason. Hopefully it would capture our attention to the extent that we might tonight look at a lesson motivated by some of the statements on this slide. It seems as though one never plumbs the depth of the various ways in which you can study the Word of God. Throughout those 66 books, we find a number of possibilities, and certainly one thing one can do is to look on the one hand at those things, as you'll notice, that are big, and contrast that in the Word of God to those things that are small. Well, surely tonight, as you give thought to how we're going to develop this, I've listed for you several examples. One could, for instance, give thought to the omnipotence and the greatness of God on one hand, compared, of course, to the emptiness of idols on the other. One is great and one is not. But on the other hand, you give thought to David in his battle against Goliath. Now there in 1 Samuel 17, David, of course, was much smaller physically. However, what a towering figure he was in faith, in boldness, in confidence in the God of heaven. Whereas Goliath, though larger in physical stature, was no match for God through David. As you can see, perhaps one more. The widow in Luke 21 As the treasury was being taken, she cast in two mites, which, of course, others observed was so terribly small, and yet it was Jesus who said, She's put in more than all of them. Jesus, of course, knew the character of her purposeful deliberation and how she had given everything she had. I say all of that to say, why don't we choose two individuals tonight, drawn from Luke 19, In the opening ten verses of that chapter, we read about, on the one hand, Jesus. On the other hand, Zacchaeus. And as we noticed a moment ago in the reading, what a tremendous difference was made in Zacchaeus' life after this encounter with Jesus. Let's close that slide then, and let's proceed to this one. And as we do that, let's cast a spotlight on the lesson text itself. What is it that took place And what about those interesting details that were revealed to us by the Holy Spirit Himself? In verse number 1, it says, "...and Jesus entered and passed through Jericho." Did you know with me? The Lord was currently on a journey toward Jerusalem. He began that journey back in Luke 9 verse 51, and it has been ongoing ever since. "...He shall arrive shortly, and when He gets there, they're going to put Him to death." He'll be crucified once He arrives, and it'll be at the Passover season when He gets there. On this occasion, of course, Jericho isn't that far from Jerusalem. Verse 1 says, He entered and passed through. It would appear He didn't stay all that long on this particular stay in in the city of Jericho. But we are told this, verse 2, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among publicans, and he was rich. Publicans. We encounter them on several occasions in the Word of God. As you and I would describe them, they were collectors of tax. That is to say, tax collectors. Now again, the Roman Empire was the ruling empire in this part of the world, and so the taxes had to be paid to Rome. The Romans would employ individuals in the, local, in the locality to collect the taxes, and they then would, of course, direct the particular tax onto the authorities in Rome. So it was that quite often these tax collectors, they were given Roman authority to collect significant tax, and sometimes they would collect it in perhaps somewhat unpleasant ways. But not only that, they on occasion would, in fact, collect sufficient tax to benefit themselves rather notably Did you notice Zacchaeus was rich? In the characteristic, at least, it would seem that in his collection of taxes, it was such that he had benefited so that he himself was a wealthy man. Now, I think all of us would perhaps look upon a situation like that. If here's someone collecting tax and he's rich, doesn't that give you at least the impression he's oftentimes collecting more than what he's rightfully should be able to collect? Well, history records many of the publicans did this. Though Rome demanded a certain amount, they would collect far more and use the rest to fill their own pockets. All of us would look rather pitifully, I think, and rather discouragingly on something like that. At any rate, verse 2 says, this man was chief among the publicans. He wasn't even an ordinary tax collector. He had risen to great prominence in the collection of taxes. Verse three: He sought to see Jesus who he was. Regardless what else might be said about Zacchaeus on this occasion, the text affirms he had an interest in seeing Jesus. He wanted to know who he was. Is he what he had already heard? No doubt, word about the master had spread rather carefully and notably, and Zacchaeus was interested. Is he really what I've heard about? Is he all that he appears cracked up to be? The next part of that verse goes on to say, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. From the time we were young, we remember... Sunday school messages and songs about the wee little man who was known as Zacchaeus. He, of course, had a desire to see Jesus, but with a throng crowded around the Lord, this short man really couldn't even come close to seeing Jesus. The text says he was little of stature. You and I know today that there are individuals who are rather sizable. A lot of NBA players are pretty tall men, aren't they? Well, in the ancient era, of course, people tended to be a bit shorter, at least on the whole. And this man, it says, even amongst those regarded in that day, was short. He was little of stature. He didn't give up, though, because verse 4 says, And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. Zacchaeus, you see, appreciated that apparently through Jericho, there was a place, there was a corridor through which the Master would pass. Given that he wasn't able to make his way through that throng and crowd, Zacchaeus ran ahead, appreciative of where Jesus would come. And he climbed up into a sycamore tree, knowing full well there he'd be able to see Jesus. Knowing full well he would actually have a view of this man called Jesus the Christ. Perhaps you can appreciate. Verse 5 says, And when Jesus came to the place, Zacchaeus had been right. He had appreciated that the Lord would come that way, and surely enough, Jesus did. Doesn't that already give you an impression? He planned ahead sufficiently such that He not only appreciated the way that he would come, but he knew what tree would allow him a view toward Jesus himself. Verse 5 goes on to say, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house." As Jesus arrived at this location, knowing again that he was journeying toward Jerusalem, he looked up into this sycamore tree. Now, it could well be that Zacchaeus wasn't that far off the ground, but he certainly was at least up in a limb. As the Lord addressed him, he said, Zacchaeus, make haste. Hurry up, would you? Come down. Today I must abide at your house. Zacchaeus got more than he bargained for. It would appear that he hoped to see the Master, he hoped to see Jesus, and yet he had the privilege, the great privilege indeed, that Jesus was going to dwell, at least visit, his house. Next verse, verse 6, it says, He made haste. Zacchaeus did come down, and it appears that he did so rather quickly and immediately. It says, And received him joyfully. May I invite you to notice that adverb joyfully. It may well be that this man, Zacchaeus, had often been looked upon with great insult, had often been looked upon with a great deal of condescension for the reasons we mentioned earlier. You're a tax collector, you're unjust, you collect more than you should and I don't want to have anything to do with you. And yet here was the Son of God Himself. I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus. Get it ready for me. Would you be impressed with how that the Lord knew this man had a soul? The Lord was interested in the welfare of Him, and he already had enough understanding, given that He could read the hearts of individuals. something fantastic was about to happen. In the next verse it says, "And when they saw it, they all murmured, "You might take note of who the they is." Remember, there was a throng, a crowd of people who, in fact, were walking beside and along with Jesus. This crowd, this throng, many of whom, no doubt, had religious consideration. Perhaps they had a special place and they had been honored by making particular placement with the authorities to be near to where Jesus was. The text says, they murmured. In contrast to Zacchaeus, who was so thrilled to see Jesus, that even ran ahead and climbed a tree so that that, that that could happen. These others that were nearby, they murmured, and this is what they said, that he was gone to be guest with a man that's a sinner. Zacchaeus, they called him a sinner. All of you and I are, of course, as well. But isn't it true that this man Zacchaeus... They faulted Jesus for going with him, and they faulted Zacchaeus for being a sinner. So you'll notice they really didn't have much good to say about either one. The next verse says, And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold." one of the finest definitions in all the Bible of repentance. And we'll have more to say about that soon enough. But aren't you impressed so far with one, notice, who was a Gentile? He was not even of Jewish background. He was not one recognized of the seed consideration of the law of Moses. And yet the Lord saw in him potential, possibility, and Jesus came to his house. And this man was sufficiently touched by the message of Christ and by the demands that went with it. He here promised that if he had exacted anything improperly, I'll restore four times as much as I took improperly. That's impressive, isn't it? Finally, you'll notice in verse number 9, Jesus said it to him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. That's a rather remarkable statement about Zacchaeus, a son of Abraham. We just noted a moment ago he was a Roman Gentile and yet reckoned in some way as an appropriate son of Abraham. We'll need to investigate what that means. And finally, probably the most well-known verse in all of the 19th chapter of Luke closes our record in verse 10. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Maybe you and I have often reflected upon that, but seen in context, how meaningful, how interesting, and how very intriguing. May I invite you to use the features of that text to develop several points, lessons that can be of benefit to you and to me. First, popularity. Without a doubt, you and I can begin like this. Isn't it true? And remember, we're going to contrast Jesus with Zacchaeus. A great deal of popularity with one, a great deal of unpopularity with the other one. Let's do Jesus first. How popular was He? Already by this point, He was well into His public ministry. Likely, He'd already been teaching and preaching well over two and a half years by this point. He had done many miracles He had raised the dead. He had healed the sick and the blind and the lame. That word had spread throughout the land of Palestine and many had made their way to learn about this one. The popularity of Jesus is seen in many particular passages like Mark 12 verse 34. The common people heard Him gladly. It seems as though they were so enamored by His message. He didn't simply teach by virtue of tradition. He taught by way of the law of God. You and I have often thought about the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. Jesus didn't merely teach what the tradition of the priests and the fathers and the rabbis had said. He taught the absolute message from heaven, the will of God. And the common people loved it for the most part. But that popularity is only extended in texts like John 6 verse 26, there due in part to the feeding of the 5,000, the people came because they wanted a full belly and they knew that Jesus could provide it. Some people you see came out of honest and earnest intent. Others came just because they wanted to be advantaged because of the miracles. Either way, that made Jesus popular. And that popularity takes us to the next point. The Lord wasn't terribly popular with the religious elite. Isn't it true that the Pharisees, and on many occasions too, other so-called teachers and doctors of the law, they were rather unhappy with the Lord's teaching. And they tried to, in fact, pin Him on dilemmas every chance they could get. Of course, they failed in all of those efforts. But isn't it true, they also tried to drive a wedge between him and Rome. We remember in Matthew 22 how that happened. They said, in regard to, of course, paying, should we pay tribute to Caesar or not? They just knew that they had him. Because after all, if he says, well, of course, pay tribute to Caesar, that would distance him from the Jewish authorities. But if he said, no, don't pay it, then the Romans would be mad at him. And the Lord answered it this way, Show me a penny whose image is on it. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they couldn't ask him any more questions. Popular with some, not nearly as popular with others. But all of that brings us to that interesting man, Zacchaeus, who has played such a role in this passage. How unpopular was he? We've already learned they called him a sinner. These others in the community, well, look at what that man does for a living. And look at the way he conducts himself. He's rich. He's rich off of the hard-earned money of everybody else. That unpopularity perhaps is highlighted in just a few of those verses that relate to publicans. Luke 18, Matthew 11, as well as Matthew 21, all of them describe the way that publicans were tended to be looked upon very unfavorably. Unpopular to be sure. But that leads us to close the slide. Let's make application to you and me today. It goes without saying that you and I, if we serve the Lord, we're not going to be terribly popular. Didn't Jesus say, the world has hated me and it will hate you too? John fifteen nineteen, And is it not true? We read in 1 John 3, verse 13, Marvel not if the world hate you. I realize the Lord's statement runs counter to what the devil would want us to appreciate. The devil wants you and I to be the norm, to be approved, to be looked upon with a degree of favor by those who are about us. We're thankful for Christian friends, and we're thankful for those whose viewpoint is similar to our own. But the vast majority of people have a viewpoint different than Christianity. They either look upon religion as unimportant, or they have adopted some religion which is not even in accordance to the Word of God. And either way, they quite often will not be ready to compliment you and I for the viewpoint that we have in light of the Word of God In terms of popularity, look at a few of these verses. In Genesis chapter 6 through 8, may I ask, was Noah popular? You and I remember well. In the midst of a world that had so often chosen the evil, there was a man in his family, and of him it is said that he was just, and he was perfect in his generations. That man was named Noah, and aboard the ark there was only eight souls, according to 1 Peter 3 verses 20 and 21. And so it's easy to see he wasn't terribly popular. But you also notice along that line, in Joshua chapters 3 and following, may I ask, how popular on some occasions was Joshua? Remember, the world that was about him did not look with favor upon the message that God had delivered to him. Maybe finally... We might notice the Lord's unforgettable statement of Matthew 7. Unforgettable because, listen to its majesty. Jesus said said it like this, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. According to Jesus Himself, on that day of judgment... How many will be saved? In the words of the Lord, he said, few. At this moment, you and I recognize well that the population of our planet has raced beyond seven billion at this point. Few there be that find it. Aren't you eternally thankful that not only was the Word of God provided to us, as was mentioned in the prayer earlier tonight, but that you and I can understand it, obey it, and make sure that our name is in the book of life. This life is not a matter of a game. It is eternally deadly, if proceeded the wrong way. Doesn't that take us back to Zacchaeus? We are not in the popularity business If we are, doesn't it take us to the very words of Paul in Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10, or rather Galatians 1, verses 9 and 10, where there Paul asserted, If I should be a men-pleaser, I am not the servant of Christ. We can't serve the Lord and serve the world at the same time. Jesus put it like this in Matthew 6, verse 24. He said, No man can serve two masters, for either you'll hate the one and love the other, you'll hold to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve God in mammon. And although those are easy words to hear, sometimes you and I find it challenging to make application. You and I, though, must do it. We are not in the popularity business and yet trying to please the Lord. One last thing on that slide would take us to James chapter 4, verse 4. Isn't it there that that inspired writer, who again was the half-brother of our Lord, he said, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And let's close that point then by saying, we at least learn from this particular saga about a message a lesson about popularity. Let's look at another one. I've entitled this one, Merely Judgment. Would you notice with me that statement in verse number 7? And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. What's pointed out to us is all of these others murmured, not just some of them, all of them. Well, maybe again, that's just a further development of that matter of popularity, but doesn't it also teach another lesson too? Here they were judging both Jesus and Zacchaeus. This man's a sinner and he's going to eat with him. And yet their hearts were the ones that was impure. Jesus was, was the one that was right. He never committed a sin. And he did no sin on this occasion either, of course as you and I develop that point more thoroughly, doesn't that remind us that Jesus, of course, brought the true message from heaven and all judgment that the Master presented is correct judgment. That's a warning, I I suppose, for each of us. We've got to be much more cautious when it comes to judgment on things not related to the Word of God. To be sure, when we have a thus saith the Lord, that ends it. That's exactly the matter we must accept by faith. But there are many other matters of expediency. When you and I present judgment on those matters, we've got to be cautious. Didn't Jesus say, Judge not that ye be not judged? For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. And so when we judge someone else, again, not over some scriptural matter, but over just a matter of personal taste and a matter of opinion, and we run them down and in fact do what they have done here to Zacchaeus, we're no friend of the truth. Out of our love for those individuals, ought not rather we have a desire that we might win them over the message of truth? As you and I think about that judgment. Didn't Jesus say it like this in John 7, 24? Judge righteous judgment. What judgment you and I do reach, even in matters of opinion or speculation, if we should always seek to do it based on the evidence before us. Not gossip or hearsay, not just because someone asserted or said it, but to be more cautious and careful. For by by, by that very judgment, we could harm irreparably any opportunity that any Christian might ever have to reach them with the gospel. Have you known of individuals who were hurt so badly by the claim of some Christian that these individuals have walked away from the church and to this point have never returned? it does cause one to think very soberly about what damage we can do when we judge improperly. Let's close that slide then like this. We do know, as you and I think about a lesson on this matter of judgment, not only that application, but this one. In John 5, 22, "...all judgment has been given by the Father to the Son." On that great and final day, we shall stand before the very One who, in a proverbial way, walked in our shoes. He walked on this planet. He knew what it was like to be tempted. He understood about the difficulties and challenges and insults of others. And He withstood it without sin. We, of course, have the opportunity to approach Him. And He'll be the One that shall be our judge. Aren't you thankful for that in a way? We won't be judged by someone who doesn't know about our circumstance and who cannot identify with what we're going through. We'll be judged by someone who not only knows the circumstance of living on this earth, but who did it with success and who did it providing himself as a sacrifice. Not only popularity and judgment. What about yet another one? I mentioned earlier that Zacchaeus is a wonderful example. Of repentance. Let's see that embodied in verse number eight. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Zacchaeus had not been in conversation with Jesus very long by this point, and yet he understood enough to know that the way of the Lord is not the way of the world. There's something different about what he teaches and what he demands of those who follow him. Zacchaeus understood well that though other publicans may in fact behave very differently, here is my declaration. I'm going to give half my goods to the poor. Would you and I do that? Would you give half of what you own for the benefit and the characterization of those that are poor? And not only that, he said, if I've exacted anything from any man, I'll restore four times as much as I took wrongfully. It's often been said, I suppose, that when our behavior impacts our wallet or pocketbook, that's a grand testimony to our conviction relative to that point. Here was a publican, a tax collector, and though he had become rich, he now was making a decision... An overt, life-changing decision. I'll give half what I've got to the poor. And if I've exacted anything improperly, too much or on false pretenses, I'll restore, quadruple the amount I took wrongfully. It's a rather breathtaking and refreshing thing to hear a publican speak like this, don't you think? Along the way, can't you and I be impressed? Jesus Christ can change lives. He really can. You and I know it's entirely possible that individuals, as they motivate their way through life, many times forces are brought upon them, and sometimes those forces insist on change, but the people often can give mouth service to the change, but never really do it. Zacchaeus changed. The Lord prompted such. And you and I can change as well. If there is something in your life or mine that needs to be changed, it's not good and it's not in harmony with the Word of God, we too can change. It's not beyond our capability. With the Lord helping us, Zacchaeus changed. He repented. Does it then help help us see that repentance is not merely being sorrowful for what you've done, We've often noted it's entirely possible for a person to be doing wrong and feel sorry that he got caught. Not really sorry that he really did those things. That isn't repentance. Repentance involves a change of mind that manifests itself in a change of behavior prompted by the sorrowfulness for what you did. Godly sorrow worketh repentance into salvation not to be repented of. According to 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10... As you and I add to those things, this thought, it closes that slide with this interesting point. Here was a man, a tax collector. How would he now be looked upon by his previous friends who perhaps were continuing to deal in the same way they previously had? That seemingly was no difference to Zacchaeus. He now served a higher power. You and I, of course, should feel the same what others think of us, we truly hope that they will be influenced for good by the way that you and I talk, where we go, and the way we live. But even if they don't, we're not going to hell because of them. We're going to be determined to serve God. And Zacchaeus at least provided an element of example for us to consider. A fourth lesson, salvation taken from the wording of verse number 9. I raised this point earlier because on the surface it appears somewhat confusing. Let's read it again. Verse number 9, Luke 19, "...and Jesus said unto him..." The hymn refers to Zacchaeus. "...this day is salvation come to this house." That part is easy to understand. Jesus is the embodiment of what is involved in salvation. Didn't he say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John fourteen six. The message of salvation, the beautiful character of truth, had come to the household of Zacchaeus on that day. But the second part of the verse says this, For so much as he also is a son of Abraham. That's the part that's intriguing perhaps even somewhat confusing, for so much as He also is a son of Abraham. We noted earlier, and of course the Old Testament highlights it, Jesus came through the lineage of Abraham. Isn't it so that of course is you and I look at the genealogies. Jesus was the son of Joseph, and that's traced back through 42 generations. And among that list is all the way back to Abraham. Jesus literally descended through the lineage of Abraham. We understand that. But it would seem from this passage, this is not a direct reference to Jesus. Because it says, For so much as He... Now, the previous reference in the verse, this house, that word this refers to Zacchaeus' house. And yet it says he, Zacchaeus, is a son of Abraham. You might pause for a moment and again ponder, if Zacchaeus was a Roman, if he was simply a Jew, I'm sorry, a Gentile, then what connection would he have had with Abraham? There may have been no direct physical descendancy at all, but yet something else is to be noted. And in a way, it reaches into your heart and mind, and it makes this declaration, I'm not a physical descendant literally of Abraham either, and neither are you. But yet, Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3 say that all of us are the children of God by faith, and in so doing, we are of the seed of Abraham. So how are you and I his seed? Galatians 3.29 says it like this, And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. You noticed it says, if you're Christ's. If you've been scripturally baptized, you are Christ's, according to Galatians 3.26 and 27. And if you're Christ, that verse says, then you're Abraham's seed. Could I ask you to notice? If this verse then asserts that Zacchaeus, a Roman tax collector, a Gentile, if he too was one who was in need of the subject of salvation, this text says that by faith he also could be viewed in just the same way. And isn't it true he did act in faith? He ran ahead and climbed up into a tree so he could see Jesus. And when Jesus told him what to do, he did it. Doesn't it seem then that though a Gentile he was, and though a Roman publican he was, he nonetheless was prompted by the attribute of faith, and in so doing, he too is a son of Abraham. That ought to characterize you and I, and that's the very idea on that slide. I hope you've been impressed, as all of us should have been, to think about the lessons we've been able to draw from the study of Zacchaeus. With that in mind, let's close our lesson. It's been an interesting record. I was thrilled to be reminded of some things again as I studied to prepare for this lesson. But not only that, we've been reminded popularity. Though Jesus was in the eyes of some, Zacchaeus wasn't. And you and I are not in the popularity business either. There was then a message about judgment. Judgment. How careful we must be with our judgment even in matters of opinion and speculation. Thirdly, that powerful record of repentance and what we learn from this tax collector named Zacchaeus. Finally, the great truth of salvation. You and I need to be the children of God by faith and in so doing we need to be connected with Abraham if we're going to be saved. Are you? Are you? Am I? If you're not a member of the body of Christ tonight, you need to be. You really need to be. Because only in that blessed ark of safety is there those who have the hope of going to heaven. For those who've reached an age of accountability, those who know wrong from right, we learn something in Ephesians 5, 23, and it says this, Jesus is the Savior of the body but the body is the church. That means if you're not in the church, you're not saved. Tonight, we would love to help you and assist you. If we could study with you, we'd love to do that even. It's true that that plan of salvation makes this demand of us. You've got to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is exactly the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Repent of your sins, just as Zacchaeus gave us an example. Confess His name as the Son of God to be baptized If we could assist you, we'd love to do it. If you've begun that Christian journey, you've become sidetracked for whatever reason. Whatever matters in your life, they may have been, it doesn't matter. Come back to your first love. The Lord will help you work through whatever problems there are. We as your Christian family here at Pippin will be delighted to pray for you, to encourage you, to assist you. If tonight you need to make a public affirmation of sin by way of repentance and confession. We'd be happy to hear them and to pray with you if we could help you do that tonight. We invite you to come. The Lord invites you to come now. For together we stand while we sing.